Italy is inexhaustible. Hi, I'm Rick Steves, and welcome to Travel with Rick Steves. When most Americans think of the Italian countryside, they picture sunny images of a good life connected to the land in Tuscany. And that's largely due to the writings of Frances Mays. She's our special guest in the hour ahead to explain how a visit to Tuscany 20 years ago changed her life. Her latest book reflects back on the two decades since she first decided to fix up an old country house in the village of Cortona. And a lot of it centers on learning to eat like a Tuscan. In all my years in Tuscany, I have never heard food connected with guilt. And as Frances found out, this attitude also lends itself to finding joy in the little things that happen every day. You're sitting in the piazza having a cappuccino, and the bells start to resound all over the piazza. And you just kind of know you're home. Stay with us for a special hour with author Francis Mays. It's Travel with Rick Steves. I think Italy must be the most popular destination for Americans in Europe. And when we think about Italy, I think we think about Tuscany. And when many of us think about Tuscany, we're inspired by the work of Francis Mays. Of course, Francis Mays wrote Under the Tuscan Sun. 20 years ago, she uh, bought a fixer-upper in Cortona in Tuscany. And Frances Mays joins us today to talk about her latest book. It's her third memoir, reflecting on 20 years of living in Tuscany. Her book is called Every Day in Tuscany, Seasons of an Italian Life. Frances Mays, thanks for joining us. Thank you. It's a pleasure. For 20 years, you've lived in Italy, and you write in your book that Italy has proven to be inexhaustible. What do you mean by that? I think if you had 10 lifetimes, you could never say, I know Italy. It just has such a rich cultural history, artistic history. Everything happens there and always has. I think since the Stone Age, people have been clawing their way over the Alps to get to it. And it's just um, always new, even though I've been going there for so many years. When I return, it seems like there's so much new to discover. You know, it is. It's not predictable. It's new. It's a little bit of chaos. I, I always tell people, you've got to take Italy as a package deal. You know, if you don't like all the chaos, go to Denmark. Uh, you know, <laughs> you've got to take Italy as a package, don't you? Yes, you do. I was on an airplane with a lot of Italians who were really having a big time and passing food back and forth and jumping up and down, and the man next to me said, Signora, a little chaos is good for the heart. <laughs> and I think it's true that it is. A little chaos is good for the heart, and a little food is good for good living, I would say. And it seems in your writing that food is a big part of your experience. Yes, I'm obsessed. I, I fully admit it. But I also think that food turns out to be kind of the central cultural metaphor for understanding Italian life. And I think how food gets to the table, who's at the table how the food was grown, all those things are so revealing of who the Italians are. So I try to look at food on many different levels, but mainly I guess I just look at it as a big celebration of life and something to enjoy. It seems like the last thing an Italian would look at food on is an economic uh, decision. I mean, uh, in the United States, uh, I think we're concerned a lot about the, the cost of a loaf of bread. And in Italy, my sense is people would rather pay a little more and know who baked it. Absolutely. They have just an instinctive sense for wanting to know who fed these rabbits what and how somebody makes cheese and wanting to know the whole intricacies of the food. And they just have such a different psychological approach to food. In all my years in Tuscany, I have never heard food connected with guilt. Now, that is a profound cultural difference. That is profound. I always thought sinful and dessert went together, but I've never heard that at all applied in Italy. <laughs> I, I think that's delightful. And what they're dealing with now in Italy, of course, is they've joined the EU, and they get a lot of these European laws coming in that are are sort of at odds with their culture, and you've got to clean up these marketplaces and make them hygienic, make them uniform, and make them fit the standards. Have you noticed that in Tuscany, that there's a struggle between modern efficiency and hygiene and uh, traditional celebration of, uh, of cuisine? No, not really. All the little shops in our town are absolutely immaculate and always have been. And now that there are some big supermarkets coming in here and there, I thought, oh dear, this is going to be something detrimental to the quality of food. But you go in these huge supermarkets and 
they're still getting the cheese from the farmer down the road. They're still getting the bakery bread. And although there are imported products like pasta from Germany, I don't think anybody truly buys it. (laughs) (laughs) One word that I found in your book was abundance. And if I was to sum up Italy in one word, abundance might be the the word I get. Life there is, it may not be... uh, necessarily abundance in uh, return on investments or finances and so on, but there's just an abundant joy of living there that I think you pick up when you you become an expat like you have. I think you're right, absolutely right. Even people who have very little seem to me to have the attitude that they are here on this earth to enjoy it and to flourish and to be happy. And there's a real sense of a general happiness that I seem to absorb and kind of go into myself anytime I'm there. Do you find yourself as a writer, Francis, as sort of a conduit between these Italian sensitivities and uh, the life that you live in America and, and your American neighbors? I know, not really. I, I feel that my writing is all memoir, but it's also coming out of a sense I have of uh, wanting to know what constitutes happiness, and that could be kind of anywhere. And Happiness is the main subject of most people's lives, you know, how to be happy. It's not a subject that philosophers have paid much attention to, but the fact that my writing is about happiness and it's about the pleasures of every day, I think that's really what seems to connect more than it being about a particular place. I could have taken snippets out of almost every page of your new book, Every Day in Tuscany, and talked about exactly what you're talking about. It's just the joys of of little things. It seems like, you know, you as an American who's moved there and spends most of your time in Tuscany, you're tuned into that because you really appreciate it. You write that in Italy, it opens you up to the possibilities of spontaneity and trust in instinct. What did you mean by that? I think because Italians feel so at home in time that they are more relaxed in time And that is a very opening up kind of experience to suddenly feel yourself not fighting time, but to kind of have the concept that time is a river you can float on or something like that. Maybe because they've had so much historical time that that they feel more at home in time. But here at home, I feel up against time. I'm checking my watch. I'm checking my cell phone. You know, it's a sense of ringing things out of time, whereas there, uh, there is more spontaneity in the day Hmm. because they don't have that sense that they're fighting time. People drop in. They don't mind staying out late on Wednesday night. It's just a sense that you have time instead of, oh, I'm going to have to take time for this. You have time. I love that. And I was just thinking my favorite country in Europe is Italy. And my favorite country in the world is India. And I think I like Italy so much because it's the closest thing in Europe to India in the, in the way of sort of a, a, huh. a celebration of life and, and uh, chaos and also this approach to time. What I learned in India, as I've learned in Italy, is that time is thought of differently than it is here in the United States. Think of just the way we describe time in our, in our own vernacular. We bank it, we waste it, we spend it, we invest it. I don't think yes. Italians <laughs> invest time or spend time or save time. I think they enjoy time. Yes, that's a wonderful way to look at it. India is definitely at the top of my list. I'll have to get your book when I go, Hmm. but it's definitely someplace I want to see. You know, India's, I've never really written anything about India, nor have I taken groups to India because Uh it's such a personal experience in India. I think it'd be tough to to, um, put it into a a nice listing of important sites, Uh which is what uh I've been trying to do in Europe. It's just a very personal thing. I think like what you've done so successfully in sharing this intangible joy of life in Tuscany. I find, as a, as a standard guidebook writer, I'm just looking for the sites and what time do you go to the Uffizi Gallery and how do you avoid the crowds at the Vatican and so on. But somebody who really knows the culture like you, you find the culture on the hearth, in the family, in the market, in, in the festival of artichokes. And that's what's fun about your writing. I'm Rick Steves. This Thank is you. Travel with Rick Steves. I'm speaking with Frances Mays. And we know Frances Mays from her wonderful book, Under the Tuscan Sun, sharing uh, her experience of buying a fixer-upper in Cortona, in Tuscany, and uh, getting to connect with that community and be inspired by Italian lifestyle and an Italian joy of life. Twenty years later, Frances Mays has written a new book, uh, her third memoir, and this book is called Every Day in Tuscany, Seasons of an Italian Life.
Francis, this is your third memoir. Now, you're looking back on 20 years of life in Tuscany. In retrospect, from your first book about this, Under the Tuscan Sun, did you romanticize anything about Tuscany way back when you were a rookie, and now you look at it and go, oh, it's not all that good? No, you know, I just always wish that I could do justice to the place. It's even better than I can possibly describe. (laughs) I don't think I have romanticized it, but in this new book, there is one very ugly incident that happened to me and caused me to kind of reevaluate my life and my time there. But as I went through this whole process of experiencing this incident, I came out on the other side of it having more of an understanding of the culture and actually feeling more at home there than I ever had. What on earth was that incident? Well, I just have to tantalize you to read that because (laughs) it's complicated. (laughs) What's it about? Give me something, just something. It's about a grenade in my front yard. A grenade in your front yard? Wow. I'll have to find that. A little (laughs) anti-American sentiment going on there. (laughs) Okay, we'll check that out. You know, we've been talking about being charmed by Italian lifestyles, and if you find a grenade in your front yard, it's a a reminder that there's a lot of history you're standing on right there, isn't it? That's right. This is another side to things. I love this notion that in Italy you've got this campanilismo, where you want to be within the sound of your town's bells. That lets you get a feeling of belonging, right? It's such an intense sense of community that you can have in a small town in Italy. And I love that word because the bells are always ringing and people know the different church bells and they describe it as the nanny goat bell, the tin can bell. The, all the different bells have their own personalities. You're sitting in the piazza having a cappuccino and the bells start to resound all over the piazza and you just kind of know your home. And it reminds you that you are in Cortona. That's your home. And somebody from a neighboring town, Arezzo or Volterra, they would have their own bell. Yes. And their own local pride. When they created Italy back in 1870, the famous slogan was, we've created Italy, now we need to create Italians. And to this day, Uh, I think Italy is called, what, the land of a thousand bell towers. People really relate to their own bell tower more than the national anthem. Yes, they do. Is that something that charms you about Italy compared to the United States, that that feeling of belonging? Well, I'm from the South and grew up with an almost identical kind of sense of community. But as a grown-up, I've lived in San Francisco, you know, a big American city all my grown-up life. So I had kind of lost that sense of community and have loved rediscovering it there. This is Travel with Rick Steves, and our special guest is author Frances Mays. Her latest book is Every Day in Tuscany, Seasons of an Italian Life. It's all about the 20 years since she first decided to buy a home in Tuscany. Frances Mays takes your calls in a moment at 877-333-7425. Io viaggio con Rick Steves. I'm Alfio Di Mauro from Catania, and I was Sicilian for I Travel with Rick Steves. Io viaggio con Rick Steves. Frances Mays is our guest today on Travel with Rick Steves. 
She's written three memoirs about making a new life in Tuscany. Her bestseller, Under the Tuscan Sun, was adapted into a movie in 2003. We're at 877-333-RICK. And you can share your own stories of how you've been inspired by Francis Mays and by Italy in the radio message board at ricksteves.com. Francis, we were talking about campanilismo and people liking to live within the sound of their own bells. And then I was also noticing in your book you've got a passion for Signorelli, Luca Signorelli, uh, a, a painter that a lot of people don't have a passion for. And uh, I'm wondering, is that a, just a form of campanilismo? I mean, he was a hometown boy. Is that why you like him so much? He's very prevalent in Cortona, and I think that is how I originally got interested in him. There's Piazza Signorelli, there's a bar Signorelli, there are statues of him, busts of him. And I think he's very undervalued as a Renaissance painter. He's one of the greats, but yet he's not really spoken of in the same breath with Piero della Francesca, who was his teacher. So I wrote this kind of trail, the Signorelli trail, tracing his work around Tuscany. In the book, there's actually a map you can follow the trail because there is a Piero della Francesca trail. So I just wanted to give uh, Luca a bigger moment in the sun than I think he's had. And I actually made some discoveries about his paintings. Wow. Which one was the last painting? And it was a great experience to write about him because I learned so much myself. And now when I sit in Bar Signorelli in the mornings having my espresso, I always bid his uh, charcoal self-portrait in there. (laughs) Good morning. (laughs) And he probably enjoyed the same Song of the Bells that you enjoy today. The same bells. He was actually a magistrate in town. So I see our mayor crossing the piazza and everybody coming up to him, asking him questions, and kind of imagine that that is exactly what happened with Luca Signorelli. Nobody knows really where he was born or where he painted, but there are a lot of records left of him around town of uh, purchases he made or taxes he paid. There's one story of him uh, painting the body of his son who died in the plague. So there are some things that kind of endure in town about him even now. I think that's a very important skill for a traveler, is to be able to let things take you back, uh, find creative ways to go back. When I'm in Assisi, I climb up to the ruined castle and I listen to the birds. And I imagine this is the same bird song that inspired St. Francis. Yes, yes. And when you're in Cortona, you can listen to those bells and you can think, wow, Luca Signorelli heard these same bells. I like to have a quest when I travel often, some particular thing that has interested me that I want to follow up, like truffles in Umbria or whatever the subject, but I think having some kind of quest gives travel such an extra dimension. It really does. And also, to me, writing about travel kind of doubles the experience. Do you find that's true, too? Yeah. it's. In fact, some of my favorite travels have been when I put my camera away and I put my guidebook research notes away, and I just go out with a little notepad, and I, I like to observe, and it sharpens my my appreciation. I can be there on Piazza San Pedro and look at that obelisk and think, wow, St. Peter looked at this obelisk on the day he was martyred. And that will just enrich my experience there. Yes, it does. I can drink a glass of Corposo red wine, full-bodied red Uh wine. And you talk about that beautifully. It talks about you get memories in, in the personality of the vintage. Tell us a little more about that. Well, wine has just exploded in Tuscany in the time I've been there. When I first got there in 1990, when you went into a trattoria, the waiter would say, Bianco or Nero? Black or white? That was kind of the extent (laughs) of it. And now there are so many great winemakers and such a spirit of experimenting. Local pride. Uh, Local pride. I mean, the Chianti used to just be table wine, and now it's, it's quite good and can be quite expensive. Yes, and some vineyards are trying to bring back old Roman methods of planting or Etruscan methods of planting. There's just a whole lot going on with wine. And I love the Tuscan wines, particularly the Brunellos. (laughs) I just feel like you can actually taste the place in the wines as much as you can with the food. You know, you hear the word terroir, but in Italy, the word they use most is genuino, that it's just such an authentic product of 
exactly where it came from. The uh, technical definition of terroir is sort of physical. It's the the dirt and the sunshine and and, uh, and so on. For me, there's also the cultural dimension of terroir. And when you drink, you're drinking the fruit of that, the labor of generations right there on that soil. And you get this local pride. I remember going down to, in Umbria, in Assisi, I was saying, oh, this Sagrantino wine is very good. This must be the Brunello of Umbria. And they said, no, no, Brunello is the Sagrantino of Tuscany, you know. <laughs> so they, they had that sort of pride in there. And uh, that's a fun thing to connect when you're traveling, and you need to take a little time to do that. I'm Rick Steves. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're speaking with Frances Mays, and, and Frances Mays, uh, famous for the book Under the Tuscan Sun, her new memoir is Every Day in Tuscany, Seasons of an Italian Life, looking back on 20 years as a person who's adopted the community and the culture in Tuscany, specifically Cortona. Marsha's on the line in Windsor Mill, Maryland. Marsha, thanks for your call. Well, thank you. A few years ago, um, six of my friends and myself um, took a trip to Tuscany, and it was right when the movie was out of your book, <laughs> and we kind of used it as a guide in, in our planning. Uh, we stayed not far from from Cortona uh, in a town called Pergine Valdarno, and uh, we had opportunity to visit uh, Siena while we were there, and, and we saw the Palio, which is a fabulous event, I'm sure. Yes. You've, you've been there, and, and we just loved our time in Italy. And some of us are nearing retirement and wondering what, it would, what the opportunities are for uh, expat living there. I mean, is it difficult to get residency visas or whatever is necessary? No, it isn't really. You uh, must, if you stay longer than just a few weeks, you must uh, get this piece of paper called a permesso di soggiorno, a permission to sojourn there. But then you can stay uh, without too much worry. But with all the immigration that's going on in Italy now, there is kind of a crackdown on people staying for just years and years. But so far... No one I know has had any problems, and I think if you go home for a month and then come back, you know, your passport says that you've come and gone. Francis, if you want to buy a fixer-upper in, in, in a town, you know, adopt your own Cortona somewhere else, uh, in, in a place that's not very famous, so the real estate would be more affordable, maybe not even in Tuscany, but in uh, another uh, region of, of Italy. If you had a couple hundred thousand dollars, could you, could you find something and, and uh, give it a go? Oh, definitely. I think the area I would look in if I were going to Italy today is the Marche. It's on the Adriatic coast. It has the beautiful town of Urbino. Mm-hmm. The Marche is quite affordable. Also, the south. I'm in love with the south of Italy. Mm-hmm. So I think although Tuscany has gotten very expensive now, there's still some places where you can find a pretty restorable house for around $100,000. All right. Marcia, thanks for your call. Thank you. And Laura's on the line in Fort Worth, Texas. Laura, thanks for your call. Yeah, thank you for having me. Comment or Hi, question Laura. for uh, Francis? Yeah. Um, I was a French major in college, and um, definitely still appreciate that culture a lot, but I haven't really studied to the same extent the Italian culture. But um, I guess like the two phrases... I think a lot of us think of when we think of those cultures are, in France, the joie de vivre, and then in Italian, la dolce vita. And I, I don't really know if there's a difference or if, hmm. if you have interpreted one. Um, so that's, that's my question. In Italy, they say gusto di vivere, same as joie de vivre. I think la dolce vita is a, a little different if it's just technically from the movie. It's... Uh, kind of a languid appreciation of, of life, but it's come to mean, I think, just a sense of the sweetness of Italian life and nothing particularly more specific than that. I find myself in Italy just in the morning saying, life is good. Uh-huh. It's a nice thing to be traveling in a way where you just recognize, wow, there's so much to be thankful for and life is just good. We have guests a lot and they often say, while we're doing something, eating somewhere or seeing something, it doesn't get any better than this. <laughs> and we've had that experience so many times. Laura, thanks for your call. Yeah, thank you. Francis, you had Robert Redford come by, is that right? Did he say it doesn't get any better than this? 
he liked it, and he said he was going to come back the next summer, but he didn't come. I think he was building a house somewhere. Okay. You... But he came to our Tuscan Sun Music Festival, uh-huh. which takes place every August, and he had quite a good time. You commented on the American obsession with celebrity, and uh, it's a little different in Italy, I guess. It is. I worried a little bit about what was going to happen when a movie was made of my book, but I needn't have because the Italians are so anciently sophisticated that they were not awed by having movie stars in town, and they have not been with the guests we've had for the festival either, Robert Redford, and last summer we had Anthony Hopkins. Our great musicians, Renee Fleming, Cecilia Bartoli, lots of well-known musicians, they're not bothered. They don't get bothered while they're having their dinner, Hmm. asking for signatures and things like that. I mean, the Italians are curious to see them and friendly, but they're not celebrity, starstruck type people at all. I've noticed that myself when I'm in Cortona thinking about you, because I think, wow, this is where Frances Mays lives. And I talk to people in Cortona about it, and they go, oh, yeah, she lives over there, but yeah, what's, what's the big deal, you know, when I here, have another cup of coffee? And uh, it's just like, yeah, she's a good writer, and she's part of our community, and so what's the big deal? And that must be a blessing for you, because you can go down in the morning. I noticed you wrote in your book, you go, you go into town in the morning before the tourists are out of their hotels, and you do your market chores, and you welcome the day, and you, you meet your friends. But you can do that as Francis, who lives down at uh, Bravo Oh, completely. Sole. Completely, yes. Now, you're respected and and a welcome member of your adopted community. Do you see other expat Americans that have a difficult time with that because they're somehow misunderstanding the culture and screwing up? What what advice would you give people to be a welcome part of an adopted community in Italy? I think the people who bought houses in our town have blended in beautifully. They're all people who are interested in the culture. They're not just people who are using it. They're not just lighting there and having their friends fly in and having fancy meals and things like that, but they've really taken to the community and participate in it. They sing in choirs, they Hmm. tutor kids, they have Italian friends and just live normal lives. So I think it's pretty easy if you go to a place and you go there with a commitment to the culture. That must be That you'll be a part of it, that you'll try to learn the language. And those kinds of things. If you remain on the outside of it, I imagine it would run out on you in a few years. But from my point of view, the people who have come to our town have just fallen in love with it. But they've embraced the Italian culture. They're they're adopting yes. the culture. Rather, you know, I think the opposite extreme is a lot of the expat communities on the Costa del Sol in southern Spain. And here we find entire communities that where people haven't learned a word of Spanish. They've got their Spanish made. They've got their Costa del Sol radio so they can listen to their language on the radio. Uh, there's restaurants that don't even have Spanish as a language in the menus. And uh, you've got these people that have moved to the sunny south coast for a change in weather, but not a change in culture. And it's still basically Belgium on the south coast of Spain or, or Scotland or America or whatever. Uh, and yes. those people offend the locals, I think. But when you embrace the culture, as I think most Americans who seem to fall in love with Italy, they fall in love with Italy because they want to embrace the culture. You're saying yes. you've got a, a reasonable chance of being welcomed as part of the community. Yes. Especially in Tuscany, they like Americans there. They were liberated by the Americans and the English in World War II, and with their long sense of time, that was not that long ago. So they still remember the Americans with gratitude, and they like the liveliness that foreigners bring to their culture. And in the winter, when there are no tourists and a lot of the people who have houses there have gone away, They are very sad. They are waiting just with excitement for spring to return and the first lone tourist to appear in the piazza. Really? Well, that's that's encouraging. And I think we need to remind people that you weren't the first person to fall in love with Cortona and move there. It was a popular destination back in the 19th century with French and English uh, romantic travelers. Yes. In fact, that Piazza Garibaldi, which is a wonderful viewpoint, was built as a fanciful thing for the the tourists to look at a, a hundred years ago. And I remember standing there on, you know, Piazza Garibaldi, where the, where the bus yes. stops? And yes. you, you look out and you realize, wow, I'm looking over at Umbria. And I'm in Tuscany. And Cortona kind of marks the end of Tuscany. 
And then you think about the cultural differences between Umbria and Tuscany. And you think Tuscany was sort of the, the southern end of the Charlemagne realm and the Medicis. And everything to the south was Vatican rule and papal rule. And you wonder, is that leaving today uh, cultural differences between Tuscany and Umbria? Have you ever thought about that sort of uh, coming together of, of two vast realms? Yes, I think of uh, that whole view out there of Umbria just as the border between the two being very lively. And Tuscany is uh, more controlled. They have many more regulations of what you can and can't do. Umbria has more of a sense of wildness about it. And the two feel distinctly different. When we drive over into Umbria, we we feel like suddenly we're in a much uh, wilder kind of situation. Well, that's interesting. That's the north-south divide in, like, Germany, where you've got Bavaria, which is more sort of Mediterranean love of life, maybe even between, you know, the um, Lombard northern Italian and the crazy southern Calabria and Sicilian yes. Italian. So you get, that's really the, um, the fault line right there between Tuscany and Umbria. Yes. I love to listen to the old shepherd songs from the Umbrians. They are just primitive and wild. And I, I listen to those and I, I think you can kind of touch the most primitive sense of Umbria through their old music. Wow, now that and is... of course they have just their own cuisines, their own dialects, their own pastas. You go 10 miles outside Tuscany and you're just in such a different place. That's going back to what I said earlier about Italy being so endless, even within a short distance. The places are so completely different. If you are a keen observer and if you're able to slow down and, and appreciate the, the little differences, and that's the challenge for all of us travelers, and we're learning that from Francis Mays. It's 20 years since Frances Mays took a leap of faith under the Tuscan sun. And today, she's sharing with us what she's learned from a life in Italy on Travel with Rick Steves. We're at 877-333-7425. Or post your thoughts online in the radio section of ricksteves.com. Born and raised in Georgia, Frances Mays traveled to Tuscany 20 years ago and decided to change her life. The soft-spoken poetry professor bought and renovated a crumbling old villa right at the edge of Cortona in Italy. The book she wrote about that experience, Under the Tuscan Sun, stayed on the bestseller lists for years. Two decades later, Frances Mays tells us she's still learning from Italy. Her latest work is Every Day in Tuscany, Seasons of an Italian Life and her website and blog are at francismaysbooks.com. These days, Frances and her husband divide their time between homes in Italy and North Carolina. But right now, she's with us on Travel with Rick Steves to connect with you at 877-333-7425. Marty's on the phone in Chico, California. Marty, thanks for your call. Hello, Frances and Rick. Well, first of all, thank you both for sharing your lives and a certain amount of vulnerability, I guess, uh, and your families. I just really appreciate it. And, Thank you. Um, no, you're welcome. This is a deep desire of my heart and my husband's to travel. We are at a place in our lives, early 50s, empty nesters and in good health, 
that we would love to be able to take a little break from life and kind of figure some things out kind of the next direction for us. And, of course, (laughs) I think the perfect opportunity would be to sell the house and travel for a year in Europe. (laughs) So, um, Sounds good to me. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) So I was curious if you, either of you, but specifically Francis, because I love Italy, my husband loves England, and we would be interested in those two countries specifically and then others as it would present itself. But are there any networks or any suggestions, advice on uh, connections with people that are even willing, not just to be a tourist, but to actually just be available for helping people, working in exchange for room and board. I mean, it's kind of been our dream, whether in America or abroad, to just start out a day and say, whoever comes in our path, whether it be a a cup of coffee or a glass of wine, sit down and have an incredible conversation, and that was the purpose of that day, (laughs) or uh, go along a roadside and see someone working on a fence or whatever and say, you know, we can help you, or even spend two or three weeks if you have work that needs to be done, basically to enter more into the life of the locals. So that's kind of our heart's desire. We come from a ministry background and love to serve people. Um, So that would be my question. Uh Uh-huh. Well, I think going to Italy, you can't help but have great interactions with people if you make even the slightest effort, because they love to talk and they love to find out about people who are traveling there. And I think it's very easy to have really meaningful interactions with people. My neighbor across the street has lived in Cortona all his life. He often meets people in town and invites them home for lunch. Uh. If your car breaks down in front of somebody's house, they are very likely to invite you in. It's uh, very much uh, that kind of place. As far as work goes, um, that's a trickier subject because with the EU and all the new laws, you really have to be careful. You have to be insured. You have to have the work permit, you know, all the things just like here. Okay. But people, that said, people do go there and they make their way. They find places where they can help with the vendemia, the grape harvest, or they sign up to tutor children in English. People do Mm -hmm. kind of under-the-table things, make their way, but legitimate work is much harder now. You have to get those permits. In Europe, they're really having economic struggles just like we are, and they're not inclined to unemploy a local person to give an American some employment there, so you'll likely work under the table or just help people out. The mm-hmm. trick for travelers, I find, is just to uh, open yourself up to these these connections with people. And Italy is the best place in all of Europe to do that because people are so eager to get you to know you. I mean, my, my rule is if I see four cute guys sitting on a bench, ask them to scoot over. Join them. Watch yeah. the, watch, <laughs> oh, watch that the, wouldn't be a problem. Watch the passeggiata. Marty, thanks for your call. <laughs> Thank you. And we have Susan on the line in Delray Beach, Florida. Susan, thanks for your call. Oh, thank you, Rick. And hello, Francis. It's a thrill and pleasure to speak Hi. with you both. Hello. You too. Um, actually, I don't have a question so much as, uh, I guess, a poignant moment to share uh, that my husband and I uh, had in Cortona when we visited uh, about 10 years ago. We were staying in a convent there. A lot of times they convert those, as, as I'm sure you're aware, uh, into yes. hospitality centers. And one of the um, sisters, the nuns that we had met there, uh, noticed that we uh, had a copy of your book in our hand. Of course, at the time, it was at the height of its popularity, and she was aware of all the, the buzz, but she hadn't had a chance to read it. So we said, well, certainly, uh, you know, we're going to be here for a couple, three days. Please take it, enjoy. Well, uh, she was devouring it. She was loving it, but she could not finish it in time. So we said, well, certainly, keep it. It's our gift. And we went back to the uh, little local bookstore there in Cortona. It was on one of the side streets off the main piazza and bought ourselves another copy because the one we had in our hand was 
uh, the Italian version, the uh, Sotto il Sole della Toscana. Uh-huh. And uh, so she was reading that. So we wanted to have an Italian version of our own. Um, my husband is fluent in Italian, and we loved having it. And so she said, well, you know, thank you so much, and I'll, I'll finish this, and I definitely want to keep in touch. We exchanged addresses, and, uh, you know, certainly we didn't know if we would hear from her or not, but uh, some months later, we received a letter, and she was telling us just how touched she was by it and how she loved reading about her hometown from your perspective. And oh, that's great. Um, it, was, it was just a really... Uh, a touching moment, and it was wonderful to walk around Cortona and, and Italy at that and see your book in the window in bookstores. It was a thrill, because we, we had read it before we went on our trip. We, we did uh, tour around Cortona on our own, and we did uh, seek out your, your home. We found it uh, by uh-huh. chatting with one of the shopkeepers. We were in a, a shop uh, that sold beautiful terracotta pottery, and we said... Uh, Oh, have you ever met Frances? She said, oh, certainly she shops here. You know, <laughs> so she was able to describe to us uh, in general how to get to your home. And we drove yes. out there and took a look. And, and one thing I remember doing, uh, standing there looking at your home and, and, and noticing everything you had described, but I turned around and turned my back to your home so that I could look out across the valley and take in the view that you had described. And oh, yes. that was very memorable for me. So, and just uh, as an aside, a little interesting note, too, uh, while we were there, a big bus pulled up to your home, a big motor coach, and a bunch of tourists from Japan filed off, and they're snapping photos, and they were just so thrilled to see the home, and it had obviously become <laughs> such a tourist destination. <laughs> if you will. So it was a thrill to be part of all that. And uh, it was my first time to Italy. So it sounds it like you had to, a great time. It was wonderful. And we've been back to Italy a couple of times, uh, different parts. It, it was great to incorporate your experience in your book into my first time to Italy. Well, thank you. And at that, my first thank time you. in Europe. So We have a whole lot of people coming to our house. And you say tourist destination, and it is kind of, and you'd think that would be awful, but it's actually been kind of a fun experience because it was fun to people watch, come you know? there and they don't yeah. bother us. They take a picture and they go, we meet people in the road, mm-hmm. and it's been kind mm-hmm. of fun. <laughs> yes, yes, and, and uh, because people just like to, to come and I think see firsthand and, and feel and experience what touched them in your book. I know I did, and uh, it was wonderful, and I think all of our experiences in Cortona just had a poignancy to them and and especially our interaction with the sister and giving her that, that yes. book as a gift that she appreciated. I, it, it really, all of it just spoke to what Rick really encourages all the time, and that is to interact and become a yes. temporary local and to engage, and, and it really is so enriching. So, Susan, Susan yes. I, I just have to interject, Susan, because people are inspired by staying in a convent uh, and enjoying Cortona, and uh, I'm, let me just read, maybe this is the place you stayed, Casa Bat- Batania. And it's a big, wistful convent with an inviting view terrace, rents 27 fine rooms, mostly twin beds, for the best price in town. While it's primarily for thoughtful travelers, anyone looking for a peaceful place to call home will feel welcome in this pilgrim's resort. 44 Uh euros for a double, 48 euros for a double with a private bath, and 4 Uh euros for breakfast. So for 50 or $60, you get bed and breakfast for two people right there on the edge of Cortona, enjoying that same view and an opportunity to experience it affordably, as Francis Mays is inspiring all of us to do. Yes, and in a unique way, too, because how often do you stay in a renovated convent or monastery? And, oh, it's just and a uh, certainly thing. you don't have to be Catholic at all to stay there, and uh, no. it's a, a unique way to experience the, another joy in travel. It's um, a great way to travel. Also, and, and, uh, the agriturismos are wonderful for that kind of unique yes, experience, I've read because that. they're working farms, I've, they're great. Yes, I'd like to experience that, I think, at some point. The guidebook that we used back then to kind of look at the convents and whatnot, it was called, I believe, Bed and Blessings. It was a great little book that highlighted unique places to stay and that enrich your time in a place, especially a small town like Cortona, so much. You know, there's, there's beautiful convents and uh, religious institutions everywhere in Italy that you can find, and they're not very well promoted, and when you do find them, they can be the most beautiful value. Susan, thanks a lot for your call. Thank you, Rick, and thank you, Francis. Thank you so much. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. 
And Francis, uh, what I think Susan was just illustrating, and as you've talked about at the very beginning of our interview, Italy is inexhaustible. Yes, it is. <laughs> this is Travel with Rick Steves. We've been talking about Tuscany with Francis Mays. Francis's new book is Every Day in Tuscany, Seasons of an Italian Life. Francis, this has been so much fun talking with you and talking with our listeners. Take us out with just um, something that, that reminds you of the joy of being an expat American, celebrating life Italian style. Well, the great joy for me is being a writer there. I have been, I think, given seven books by living in Italy for 20 years. And I have a third-floor study in my house that looks out into the hills. And I just love the view from there and the inspiration I get from the landscape. The room has these wonderful three paneled shutters so that you can control the light coming in and out. It has this lovely kind of latticed effect on the floor in the hot afternoons and slight breezes come in. When the windows are open, the birds and butterflies come in one window of my study and out the other. And to me, that symbolizes kind of how the inside and the outside blend together in life there. And that's one of the things I enjoy most about living there is that seamless indoor-outdoor aspect of living and the close association you feel with the place itself. Francis Mays, for all you've shared about your love of life in Tuscany, for we travelers, I'd like to say, grazie per tutti. Thanks for everything. Uh, grazie a te, Rick. Any of us can be inspired by the life choices and experiences of Francis Mays. On occasion, we call a listener who writes to us with a particularly compelling story to share with our listeners on Travel with Rick Steves. One of our listeners, Christine in Portland, wrote us recently to say that she had a life-changing experience in Italy. After trying and failing to convince her sons to study abroad, at age 56, Christine took her own advice, moving to Rome to complete a master's degree. And Christine's on the line in Portland, Oregon. Christine, thanks for your call. Oh, thank you. It's a pleasure to talk to you, too. I uh, had the experience of actually living in Rome for five months this past year, and uh, it was an incredible experience because, you know, I've had the really the privilege to travel a lot in my life, but I've always been visiting or, you know, touring of, of a sort. But to be able to live in a place and to be totally kind of embedded in the community there is just amazing. And since I was also studying, I had the opportunity then to meet so many other people from other countries because Rome is still, as I found out, the center of the world as far as everyone's concerned who lives there and studies there. So it was just a fascinating experience to live and study with people from all over the world who were calling Rome their home as they were doing their studies. You know, it's interesting you say that because I get the joy of updating my guidebook to Rome every year or two, and I always meet people who are passionate about something that are in Rome studying it. They can be from all over the world, and they're just um, scholars or enthusiasts that want to learn more, and they go to the, uh, you know, the capital of the Roman Empire, and of course it's got many layers of fascinating and rich history, and they themselves are an inspiration when I you know, try to uncover Rome and appreciate that. Of course, a lot of foreign study programs uh, have programs in Rome, don't they? Yes, yes, they do. This was a master's degree in theology, so we were able to study really where you know the center of the church is, wow. and had wonderful Dominican uh, instructors, and they were you know teaching in Italian and English. But the the draw there is that uh, the students are from all over the world. Now, this and was a master's uh, degree in theology. Correct. For what school? Uh, Franciscan University. Uh, from where? That's in Steubenville, Ohio. Okay, and did you actually do studying? Out in the field, would they take you to certain places where you could be in situ? No. What we did was we went to one of the pontifical colleges and took our classes there with the students that were attending that, that university. Okay. 
So we were able to spend a semester there with the other students, some of whom were there for five or six or seven years. And many of those students are like from Africa or from India um, or from the uh, Korea, the Philippines, and they actually leave their home, go to Rome and spend five or six or seven years getting their degrees, and then they go back to their home country and are able to be professors and teachers uh, there. Now, when you're in Rome as a, as a student or somebody who's living there, how would you say it's a different experience than from the casual tourist, and what would you advise to tourists to, even if they're not going to live there, to be able to tap into it like you did when you actually uh, settled down? You know, if you keep your eyes and ears open, you find out all kinds of things that are going on day by day. And, uh, for example, there were organ concerts always on a Sunday night, almost year-round there, at various churches. And once you saw, for example, a flyer or a poster at one church, you could begin to see that they're all over the city. And it was just a magnificent free event, uh, old cathedrals and churches or the small little churches and these magnificent organs that are centuries old that people just love to play. Wow. So that was a wonderful experience. So there's ways to really uh, get beyond the tourist attractions. Absolutely. Yeah, our our son spent a semester in Rome uh, with his uh, Notre Dame foreign study program, and I'll tell you, to visit him, he knew Rome in a different way than I ever will, and it was just a a delight to be able to run around with him and see the enthusiasm he had for, for that more intimate angle on that great city. Oh, right. And do you run around? Boy, the the walking speed there is amazing. Oh, yeah. The eight students and I all lost about 10 pounds on average just because we walked constantly, even though we really ate and enjoyed everything in that city. That's perfect. You get to eat a lot, and you exercise a lot, and you can eat a lot more. And what a great place to be able to eat a lot without getting fat, Italy. It sure is. All right, Christine, thanks for your call. You're welcome. Bye-bye. Travel with Rick Steves is produced by Tim Tatton at Europe Through the Back Door in Edmonds, Washington. Some of today's music excerpts came from Puccini's Tosca and Madama Butterfly, from the 13th century Laudario di Cortona, from Italian singer Giovanotti, who lives in Cortona, from the soundtrack to the film Under the Tuscan Sun, and from the Etruscan Concerto by Peggy Glanville Hicks. Thanks to Sarah McCormick and to Larry Josephson at the Radio Foundation in New York for their help. There's more online in the radio section of ricksteves.com. And join us again next week for more Travel with Rick Steves. Si, si. Mille grazie per tutti. <laughs> Each year, Rick Steves Tour Guides take thousands of free-spirited travelers on escorted tours through Italy and beyond, one small group at a time. For example, just for Italy, you can choose from 10 exciting itineraries. For a free tour catalogue and Rick Steves Tour Experience DVD, visit the tour section at ricksteves.com.